Hi guys and welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast. I am virtually sat here with my co-host Luke Hoffman and our guest will be guest number five this week, Jacques Taylor from the world-renowned Myotopia. How are you gentlemen? I'll let Jacques go. Very well, thank you. Very well, thank you. Yeah, so excited, excited. We've got um, Jacques here to talk through what he's best at. Um, he's got some upcoming education in the UK as well. So a lot of the topics that we'll be discussing will be cross-transferable to that. Uh, but I think the particular relevance of today's episode will be following on from a lot of the content we've been pushing out through socials, but also especially the seminars that we've just completed with Embody and we will be doing again towards the, the back end of this year. Um, and just having you know, what, what we consider an expert in, the, in this field talking on that topic and going into more detail and just giving, giving us new ideas and new concepts and, and breaking stuff down in more detail is going to be fantastic today. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give us a, an introduction into who you are and what you do, Jacques? Uh, yes. Well, um, my passion ever since I was a teenager has always been the neurosciences. And uh, so I went to school and studied and uh, worked in labs uh, where I learned several different um, uh, techniques in, in the exploration of neuroscience. Um, but my passion also led me to exercise. And uh, what I wanted to understand is if there are better ways to design exercises, if there are um, better ways to basically get the promise of exercise. Um, exercise is recommended probably more than any other modality in terms of either maintaining health or improving health. Um, but so many people who try to exercise, they don't get those benefits, right? They quit. Either the knees hurt or the back hurts or they're not losing the weight or they're, they're still stressed out or they're still depressed, right? So I want to understand if we, if we, if we apply some of our principles of neuroscience to exercise, can we actually help people get stronger faster? Can we help people decrease their stress? How can we help people shift their blood chemistry? Can we help people with their depression? Can we help people with their anxiety? Can we help people even learn better? Can we help our athletes even perform better if we start to apply some of these principles of neuroscience? The exciting thing is, yes, we can. Mm. I know, and I mean, for the guys that have attended Jacques' uh, FNS course, which you've now renamed, but um, you'll have been exposed to some of these ideas. And and, I mean, it's it's one of the reasons why I um, pursued a a mentorship with Jacques um, because, I mean, learning about this side of exercises is incredibly fascinating. and it's amazing the amount of control we can have over over individuals' nervous systems and how they're responding to to all to exercise from all these different um, all these different areas. Um, so it's, it's it's amazing, and um, yeah, it's an like it's an honour to have Jacques on here to to be able to go through some of it. So thank you for coming, man. Oh, it's my pleasure. It's my mm. pleasure. Mm. What do you do from like a, a day-to-day basis in terms of what's what's the daily job for you now Jacques in terms is it content creation is it in the lab like what's what's going on day to day now uh day to day it's um I have a chunk of the day that's always designated for uh 
reviewing the literature, reading papers. Um, I also have a portion of the day that's dedicated to designing new um, electromyography experiments and conducting those. Uh, and then I also have clients that I work with one-on-one -on -one, um, in my training studio. And then I also consult with students um, and exercise professionals uh, around the globe about uh, how to solve some of those, you know, tricky, nagging problems that, that just won't go away. You know, that client where they've got this knee thing or um, every time they get close to their personal best, they start to get flaky and, you know, stop, stop coming to the gym um, or, uh, Yes, someone whose body composition isn't shifting the way they'd expect them to, even though they're on a good diet and they're working their tails off, right? What are the missing links that help to really, again, deliver on the promise of exercise? Mm -hmm. So yeah, they're pretty packed days, <laughs> but it's, uh, it's, it's exciting. And then, um, yes, uh, definitely some content creation as well. Um, but it takes a lot of time to read enough um, apply it and then um, vet it before you can deliver the content because there's, there's so much content out there that's um, that's shaky um, that is um, not well supported and I try to make sure that everything I suggest to um, all of my clients is well supported and is very clear in terms of the basis of the hypothesis and then how to measure your result mm. Mm. I think that's one of the cool things we've spoken about um, in our sessions is, is how, you know, as personal trainers and, and coaches and the fact that we're dealing with clients in the situations we are, um, we, we need to be kind of embracing the whole role of being scientists and being having the opportunity to come up with these cool hypotheses and, and, and run them with all these different clients and seeing what what happens and like the data we can collect from that and how that can inform our, our coaching practice in general. Um, I think that's, that was one of the most fascinating ways of viewing the whole role as coaches. And um, yeah, that, that, I mean, what do you, is that, that that's definitely how you kind of approach things now, isn't it? Yes. Yes. It is. Um, um, it's, it's really interesting from, from my perspective, each of my clients for their specific goals, I have to develop a hypothesis to, about you know how I'm going to get them from where they are to where they want to be, and uh, then I have to have very specific measures that are going to let me know oh we're actually heading in the right direction, and then obviously a measure that lets us know we've arrived right, and that's great that's exciting because what's really cool is sometimes you'll have a great plan based on your hypothesis, but it's not working. But what's nice is when you see that it's not working, you can actually start to look at the data again and say huh why is it this number changing their way and write that down. Now, what I'm excited about, Luke, in terms of meeting more colleagues like you and like Callum, um, really scattered across the globe is, as we all start to get excited about this idea of having a hypothesis, running an experiment, and collecting data, we can start to share that with each other. And if we start to see common trends, guess what? We're gonna find new ways of helping people. But if it's just me doing my, my research and just you guys doing your research, then that's not really strong evidence. We really have to start to pool our data so we can say, yep, yep, I'm seeing the same thing. Yeah, I'm seeing the same thing. Or no, I am not seeing the same thing, guys. Right? And that way we can start to understand, oh, well, 
Luke works with bodybuilders, and Callum works with high-level athletes. Jacques works with people in their 70s, right? We've got so we might have different uh, different responses to different to to, to different scenarios. Mm. Mm. So let's um let's jump in then and, and kind of explore some of these things. Like you mentioned about the different uh you know kind of people getting flaky and stuff and they go to the gym so like if we're if we're looking at kind of mechanisms of of how muscles respond to training um and you and i have spoken about this but the role of things like bdnf so brain derived neurotrophic factor and how that can positively or negatively influence someone's experience in the gym based on something just as simple as their mindset um yes is that is it i mean can you can you speak about that and kind of explain how that works absolutely um so (laughs) this is something that i still to this day think is one of the most fascinating and um under reported aspects of exercise and that is when you exercise and under very specific conditions your muscles produce hormones not just waste products of metabolism, not just lactate, right? They produce hormones that actually leave the muscular system and affect other tissues in the body. They actually cross the blood-brain barrier. Mm. One of the hormones that gets produced is this brain-derived neurotropic factor, BDNF for short. And I know that sounds weird, brain-derived being produced by muscles, but the problem is that they discovered it first in the brain, then they discovered it being produced by muscles. Anyway, this brain-derived neurotropic factor gets produced by muscles when they are contracting at an intensity that, incre- that greatly increases their need for aerobic metabolism, right? So under what we call aerobic conditions, but not under baseline aerobic conditions, but when there is a challenge to the ability to keep up using an aerobic metabolic process to produce energy. Mm. When you have those circumstances and BDNF is produced, it can cross a blood-brain barrier and it can help to facilitate the production of more serotonin. It can help to facilitate um, uh, cognitive uh, benefits, meaning your, your memory and your learning increases. But when you are stressed out, when exercising has become an activity that you do not want to do, that you find unbearable, that you absolutely don't want to do this exercise, then that actually undermines the ability of BDNF to do all those cool things, right? So you hit that hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, that stress axis, right? You guys probably talked about that before. Yeah. Now you've got all these stress hormones surging through your body and they counteract the effects of the BDNF. So here you are trying to do something great for yourself, exercise, at a, at a decent amount of intensity, get all these hormones produced, but then you since you're really stressed out, you're not going to get all those benefits. Mm. So that's a great way of, 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 of having a first look at how the way you think about your exercise influences the outcome of those exercises. Your mindset, what you are thinking about, what you are feeling about that exercise can influence whether you get a lot of benefit or just a little bit or even whether you get none yeah so would you would you say that there's kind of a room for like not necessarily 
um, like it's still possible to get benefit out of exercise, but you could maybe not um, hate the exercise or, or have a strong dislike for it in the, in the way that would negatively affect BDNF. But if someone is pushing to levels that are just extremely difficult to get to, um, they can still gain some benefit without crossing over and, and uh, getting those negative effects. Well, you know, Luke, here's, that's, this is the next really important part of, of this neurologic approach to, to exercise. And that is, we have been conditioned to think that the only way to lift that massive amount of load is to get angry, to get psyched up, and to destroy something, right? That's, that's our conditioning. Mm. But what if we had the approach, and this is, this is the way I think of it, this is, this is my experience of it, I should say, and the experience of a lot of my clients is, you know how when you're, when you're, you know, when you're first learning how to do a chest press with dumbbells, right? And I, I know when I first started doing a chest press with dumbbells, doing 65 pounds, man, I was doing something. I felt like, whoa, look at this, right? So as I got stronger, and 80 pounds was in within reach. I was like, whoa, that's that's pretty cool. But these are pretty darn heavy. And then when 100 pound dumbbells was in reach, I was like, now those are the big guys up there, man. So every time I get to those 100 pound dumbbells, I would get all like ready for that weight. And then I thought to myself one day, wait a minute, Jacques. What does this really 100 pound dumbbells really feel like? Let's get curious. Let's see just how easy this might be today. That's a completely different mindset than, oh my God, this is going to suck. I know I can do this, but man, this is going to be so heavy. Mm. So I'm not saying that you have to be, you have to do Jedi mind tricks on yourself, but if you can find a way to be curious about your ability to do an exercise, man, you might actually enjoy pushing as hard as you can, still getting to the point where you want to vomit, if that's what you want to do, and still going, Vomiting with a smile on your face. Have you ever done that before without being at a pub? Uh, uh, excuse me. Uh, never, uh, we don't go to pubs. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, like, weirdly, I've never been in that situation. Like, <laughs> I'm say, I train like a pissy, but I've never yeah. actually pushed myself <laughs> right, to the point where I throw up. But I don't know. That's just me. That's some people. You know, some people feel like if you're not, you know, if you are not, you know, crawling on the ground, or, you know, going out of the gym with your arms down next to your sides, you can't lift them up, you haven't done anything. And I'm saying, well, you don't have to go there, number one. But number two, if you do, at least enjoy it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I reckon it's just counterproductive, especially if you just had a load of expensive intra-workout supplementation. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, so, so that's like, I mean, you mentioned um, kind of hitting the – HPA axis, the hypothalamic pituitary axis from, from a negative standpoint from yes. with the stress response. So let's say we have an individual who kind of is loving their training and they're nailing it and they're getting this BDNF benefit, but they're also doing things in the gym that are potentially exceeding their, their active range or the control they have at certain joints and causing Ooh. this like, the the, the, oh. the type of noxious stress that would potentially lead That's to right. that neurogenic information that you've also spoken about before. And yes. I brought that up on a previous podcast and left it hanging because I knew we were going to get you on to talk about it. <laughs> cool. Um, but the, I mean, what? So what would be the implications there in terms of triggering that kind of inflammatory yeah. cascade? 
That's a great, that's a great question. Uh, so let's back up a little bit and talk about the, this, this neurogenic inflammation. So if we break down that word, neurogenic meanings starting with the nervous system and then inflammation. So this is inflammation that starts with the nervous system. In other words, when you go to that excessive range of motion where you are out of control doing um, a preacher curl, right? And that weight just slams down into a fully extended position, okay? You had a massive weight, you know, you're doing your curls with your, you know, what, uh, uh, 30 kilos, right? And you're sitting there, you know, just cranking it out and you're just letting it just fall into that full, fully elbow extended position over a, over a preacher bench. It is entirely possible that in that position, some of the receptors in your joints, some of these things called nociceptors in your joints, and also primary afferent sensory endings. That's just another fancy word for uh, nerve endings in, in, the, in the joint capsule. They may actually get stressed because of that force that's being placed on them and, and uh, start to express or leak out these very specific molecules that create inflammation. They trigger inflammation. They trigger that swelling that can happen in that, that joint. And as a result, that starts to decrease the amount of force that the muscles can produce. So this neurogenic inflammation not only causes what potentially that edema, that, that, that edema or that swelling at the joint, but it can also feed back to the spinal cord and decrease the amount of force that the muscles around that joint can produce. Mm -hmm. If you think about that, that's a kind of a genius thing, right? When your body realizes there's some sort of insult on it, it goes, wait a minute, let's start to decrease the amount of force that's being produced at that joint because something's wrong, mm -hmm. something's wrong. So you can have somebody who's loving their exercise, but if they're doing it inappropriately, they're going to create circumstances in their bodies that do not favor healthy adaptation. Their recovery is going to be longer. They're going to want to get back to the gym in two days, but they really need to lay off for five, right? But they'll be back in two days, and what do you know? Before they know it, they've got a tendonitis or that ache that won't go away. You know, you know the scenario. Yeah, and that—that's like it's one of the things I remember you mentioned where once you've triggered that mechanism, the threshold mm -hmm. of being able to do it again is lower. So That's right. these recurring injuries that people have or these recurring niggles could potentially be this recurring bout of right. inflammation, right? That's right. So in other words, the next time around, you won't even need as much force to trigger this neurogenic inflammation. Mm. Now, here's the other thing, Luke, and, and I, I think... This is, I think, one of these days, uh, the three of us uh, are going to do a master class on this. All right, you ready for this, Callum? Here's what we're going to do: is we are going to take, we're going to look at some of the special cases out there. You know, people who have, you know, we'll call it borderline um, diabetics. Uh, we'll call them people who have um, some sort of borderline immune, um, autoimmune disease, um, and they're all in treatment. They're all getting their doctors to do their thing but they all have also been told to go work out. Now, you take one of these individuals and you have a, have a ill-conceived, poorly designed exercise that is triggering neurogenic inflammation, and these people have major problems. These are the people who go, man, you made me do that exercise with just five pounds, and I felt like crap later tonight. It was horrible. I was so sore, my stomach hurt, I had a headache, and you're thinking, what? You just did five pounds, right? We just did, 
we just did a couple of easy good mornings with no weight. Mm. What was it about those exercises that triggered that response? It's the neurogenic inflammation that is triggered at the extremes of joint ranges of motion. Mm. So we could look, we could, the three of us could look at those pathways to actually see which of those molecules affects, affects the gut, right? Because some people get massive diarrhea, other people will get constipated and that might, that might lead us to understand a little bit more about their, their gut fauna. And you guys know all about that stuff. I not nowhere near my, my realm of, of understanding or expertise, but it's so interesting to me how the nervous system um, influences that, that tissue. Just gonna, that, that'll influence you know, how, you're, how you're programming as well with different calibers of clients, obviously, as well. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And I think what's really interesting, Callum, is to, is to go, literally go through every exercise we can imagine and kind of go, okay, so could this exercise be potentially a neurogenic inflammation-inducing exercise? Mm. And then go, well, if I had the direction of force like this, probably not. Like that, absolutely, right? Mm. Hmm, what about uh, this exercise? Everybody says, this is such a great exercise for the core. Well, here's the problem. Right, so we could actually break it down so that we. So if you know you have a client who is, has a high likelihood of being triggered by neurogenic inflammation, you'd want to avoid these these ranges of motion. And then the next thing to do is say, wait a minute, if I really have them on a great diet and a great workout plan, then their threshold for neurogenic inflammation should be going up. Mm. So over time, I should be able to do some of these more aggressive range of motion ending end of range of motion challenging exercises right mm -hmm. so just because somebody starts in the kiddie pool right doesn't mean that they have to stay there they can actually uh, uh, you know learn how to evolve and be thrown into the deep end mm -hmm. so we, we can we, we can build a, a capacity to handle more than over time it's just starting from the right level first that's right that's right and and then also the, the, here's the other thing um i should say is you know how there are certain sports or uh, yeah, I also say certain sports where they say in order to be good at this sport, you have to do this one exercise. This one exercise will determine whether you are good at this sport or not. I don't know, like like in, Amer in America, if you play football or any sport, they're going to tell you, you got to be able to bench press. Why? I have no idea. Right. <clears throat> so if that's somebody's goal is to have them do this, these bench presses and they happen to have a, a very narrow uh, thorax. So when they let the bar come down and touch their chest, like the quote rules say, they are actually in a position for their shoulder joint capsule where that might kick off some neurogenic inflammation. Mm. Now, if I know that I have to get this athlete ready to do that, I'm going to over time do a series of exercises to get their bodies prepared so that number one, they may not have the neurogenic inflammation number two if they do it's not an in a, a an event ending incident see what i mean mm -hmm. but having the knowledge of what kicks it off and how to prepare somebody to tolerate more that's the difference between someone truly succeeding and someone barely making it through a season mm. right so in terms of if you had let's say someone and you were struck you, they came to you with that sort of goal or you had someone in that who fell into that population you were mentioning earlier who was like higher levels of information and things like that. Yes. If you were going to structure them in terms of how to get them to that point, 
what are the kind of steps you'd follow? Obviously, without being able, oh, going to follow, it's not going to be the same with everyone. But we, we, sure. you would consider from sure. you know, even if you were assessing someone's active range, let's say, yes, yeah, um, and like, would you still take them to the extremes of their active range? And what you know, what are the sort of things you would consider from a contraction point of view? Like, would you put them in situations where they're potentially spending a lot of time doing concentric portions of a lift or eccentric portions of the lift where information may be higher or things like that? Like what are the sort of approaches you'd implement there? All right. So there's, there's a couple things. You mentioned a, a few of the important elements of it in there. Um, number one, I would absolutely start with an active range of motion to see if it's the same on each side. Okay. If it's not the same on each side, I have a decision to make. Do I work with the, within the limitation of the limited side or do I try to make those sides symmetrical? Mm. That's a choice to make. One of those choices is not better than the other. It is simply a choice to make. Now, if, if the limited range of motion would still allow the bar to touch, touch their chest, I'm not quite as concerned about it, right? Mm. Perhaps at first. Or I might explore that to go, hmm, let's see if we can make that a little more symmetrical. And just a little, I'll just say this little side note, we can use this process called post-activation potentiation to give us a bit more of that active range of motion. That's a whole nother story. We can get to that later if you want. Yeah. Another thing I would think about this for this person is I would say, all right, where are they most vulnerable to neurogenic inflammation? So let's go through horizontal abduction. And as I'm going out, um, to as you are lowering a bar for a, a bench press, that abducted position all the way down, I'd say that's a position that's most likely to kick off neurogenic inflammation. So in that position, I'd want the load to be as light as possible. So what I'd have to do is I'd have this person actually doing probably like a cable press where at the very bottom of that range, the cables are pulling directly out to the side. So it's all about elbow flexion in that position. And it's almost zero at the shoulder joint, right. <laughs> right? And so then as they press up, the load increases, but I'm far away from the, from the joint positions that would create that neurogenic inflammation. Then as this person demonstrates a greater tolerance for this, I can start to angle that cable a little bit more posterior each time, right? So now at, in the bottom, at that bottom position, they're getting more and more load until it's right behind them, and now I know, huh, okay, this person might actually be ready to put a bar in their hand. Mm. Now, there's one other question in here, is how will I know if neurogenic inflammation is being kicked off? Yeah. Right? It's a couple things. If you're working with someone who's pretty fair-skinned, who's white, right, or really light-skinned, um, uh, sometimes there'll be uh, an acute reddening of that area. That area will get really red, right? There will also be, um, it's hard to see in the shoulder, inflammation. It's very hard to see inflammation in the shoulder. Um, the other thing you can use is some sort of a uh, surface um, thermometer, which actually will show you a, a rise um, in, um, in the temperature of the tissues. All right? So obviously there's going to be some rise in temperature when the tissue is being used, but with neurogenic inflammation, it'll typically be a little bit more, right? But it needs to be a pretty sen sensitive thermometer to do that. Mm. And is that the sort of thing? Hey, use a rectal thermometer. You cannot. Yeah. Is that the sort of thing people can get access to pretty easily? I don't think you got that, Callum, but it's okay. What? Hmm? So is, is that the sort of thing you can get access to pretty easily? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
Right. If you look, uh, like there are even um, the, the, I'm trying to think of a brand. Um, uh, what I'm thinking about is there are actual watches that will, you know, give you some um, uh, temperature reading of the skin. Mm. Right. Um, but that's probably uh, the other measurements. That's probably going to be the hardest to, to do in your lab or in your studio, excuse me. Mm. So, but would, would you consider that, well, would you say that anyone who's, you know, so if people that are out there training on their own and they're getting kind of, and they want to look for subjective feedback, um, just things where they're feeling, you know, sh you know, little sharp pains and, and niggles on that, you know. It starts before that. that. That's the sort of feedback they should be looking for. It starts before that. And here's the thing, here's the thing. Um, I'm guilty of this too, for sure. There are certain types of discomfort that those of us who really like working out have learned to accept. Mm. It's just part of the set, right? Yeah. So what I'm going to say is, and this is, the, this is the weird thing, is that these sensations are different at each joint. At your shoulder, the, the feeling is almost like um, um, it, it is a, I'll call it a pre-ache. It doesn't feel like your pecs are on fire. It definitely feels like you did, quote, shoulder work. It feels like something inside is actually fatiguing. Mm -hmm. That might be the first sign that there's some neurogenic inflammation. Mm -hmm. Now, you can keep going to the point where you go, oh, ouch, that, that actually hurts, <laughs> right? You definitely got some neurogenic inflammation going on. But I think we can identify with that feeling. You know that feeling in your shoulder where you're just like, that doesn't, no, that doesn't feel like the third rep. The third rep felt like I was squeezing my pec. Now this rep feels like, yeah, I could probably do another three. Mm, yeah, no, stop. I know that's the most vague thing I've probably said all day, but I think we can all identify with that. We can identify with these, 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 you know that internal signal, but we what, but we are called forth to keep pushing through it. Yeah, I think a really good a really good example of that, and Luke will know, is I've had issues with my left shoulder for a long time. Um, just constant inflammation, constant pain, constant numb, aching, and you know, programming wise, we we had to manipulate things in a way where a the ranges or the the loading patterns that i was using weren't aggravating it and we reduced volume a lot to make sure that i was recovering more in the training cycle but b just from my perspective being you know because i'm used to working to a high point of fatigue from my perspective knowing what's going to be productive and what's not going to be productive as soon as i get to the point yeah. where that tolerance has been exceeded you just stop the set because before if I was being blind to it and masking that with just my my ambition to drive fatigue as hard as possible, I'd have pushed through, and then it would be you know that would be gone for another four or five days, and that yeah, presumes yes. the inflammatory response again, just reoccurring, reoccurring, reoccurring. Yep. And the tricky thing about the the inflammatory response is that there is part of the response that um, that initiates the healing process, right? That's what inflammation initially does, is it kind of cleans up the area and starts to call in the messengers that are gonna have to actually fix things up. But if another insult comes along before the healing can take place, then you just get more inflammation, right? <laughs> so- would that, would that be referred to as chemotaxis, that side with the cytokines? 
Uh, yes, yes. Chemotaxis, uh, and that happens through a, a process called fluid extravasation, right? Or that, that shift of fluid from the blood plasma into the tissue. Yeah. So this, this brings us to another ra rather radical thing that is becoming supported more and more by uh, orthopedic surgeons, at least in the U.S., um, is that our instinct when somebody sprains an ankle, you know, has a little ache in their shoulder or their back or, or their knee, is to throw ice on it, right? Get rid of the inflammation. Well, that's a problem. The reason why we have inflammation is to initiate a healing process. The problem becomes when I turn my ankle, but I still have to get all the way back down the mountain. Or I've turned my ankle, but I'm being played, paid $250,000 to finish this basketball game. I got to keep going. So in those cases, yeah, I want to minimize my body's desire to put on the brakes, halt all things, and heal. That's what I want to put on ice. But for the rest of us who have days to recover, who can be like, oh, I'm out. I don't see the reason to inhibit the healing process. Let your body heal. And if you truly let it heal, that inflammation will go away. It will go away once the job is done. Mm. But if we interrupt the healing process because we just got to get after it, eh, good luck with that. Then we start to do things like, well, let's, yep, we, we got, still got some inflammation down there. Put some ice on it. And it never heals. Mm. Now, there is another type of inflammation that's chronic inflammation where um, the structure has healed, but for some reason, there's still some inflammation down there. And that might be a result of, of um, uh, I'll call them hmm, control issues around that joint. Mm. So in other words, because of the injury, you compensated. There's still the, the original injury is healed, but you're still walking with that limp. So you're getting abnormal forces of the joint, which gives you neurogenic inflammation, which keeps the inflammation at the joint. Mm. So then we have to figure out a way of giving, getting this person's neuromuscular system to go back to using the more efficient, original way of moving, right? Mm. And that's a fun thing. The only way you can do that is by giving this certain nervous system an opportunity to try a different way of walking other than the limp. So we have to create these different scenarios within the gym where we can go, hey, wait a minute. Let's see what would happen if we were to have you move like this. Oh, now you know how to do that. Let's see if that changes your walk. Mm. That could be something at the ankle, the knee, the hip, lower back, you name it. And, and that comes back to the post-activation potentiation thing? Uh, well, that actually, uh, not all the time. Okay. Uh, Luke, one of the, one of the, 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 the coolest things is uh, when, you, when you get a taste of post-activation potentiation, it looks like the coolest thing in the world. And it's what you want to do all day. I mean, you just think like, oh my God, this is it. <clears throat> and what we're talking about is everybody's seen this at some point. You know, someone will say, hold your arm out to the side or hold your arm out in front of you. And they'll shove down on your arm. And then they'll either wave a crystal in front of you or they'll make you take a supplement or they'll put something in your hand or they'll rub on your shoulder or they'll, I don't know, do any number of things. Then they'll have you put your arm back out in front of you and they'll push down on your arm and you're really strong. And they're like, see, well, that was just post-activation post potentiation. It wasn't the crystal. It wasn't the supplement. It wasn't the rubbing. It wasn't the, the whiskey. It wasn't the magnet. It was none of those things. 
not good for but business, though, is it? <laughs> oh, it's a hell of a business. It's a hell of a business. But here's the thing, and that is, it's it's a cool thing to watch people go from not being very strong to being really strong. But that phenomenon is is not necessarily what you'd want to do for all goals. Okay, and I think that. Oh, I'm in a way. I'm sorry I brought that up, but in a way, I'm not. It's just a, it's a it's a it's something that I want to walk you guys through what's happening with the motor units as you post active as you do this post activation potentiation. But I want you to know that if I was doing hypertrophy training, I would not always post activation. I would not always employ post activation potentiation. Mm. If I was doing strength training, you betcha, I would probably jump all over it. As much as I could every time. Yeah. So but, so, cool. but just before we jump into that, I just had a thought back on the um, neurogenic information side of things. That mm-hmm. um, you know, when we boil down the mechanisms that are, are occurring during the triggering of that that inflammatory cascade, that obviously starts with that substance P and and all that stuff that gets released, and we get the like the catecholamines in the corticosteroids and the glucagon and all that stuff that's going to raise blood sugar if if you had an individual that because there's a type of blood sugar monitor called the freestyle libra that you can put on and it basically will track your blood sugar you have it like a thing that sits on the back of your arm and gives you a 24-hour reading so you'd be able to get a reading of your blood sugar during exercise would that potentially be a tool that you could use to measure if someone's getting a, like an acute? Dude, that's awesome. What was that called? The uh, freestyle Libra. Uh, but okay. you, you, you I mean, you, we'd see probably an increase in blood sugar anyway. But I, I'm assuming if someone was having quite a severe neurogenic inflammation response, that response would be so, ridiculous. So, and 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 Luke, to me. What, why I'm so excited about meeting guys like you and Callum is that like these are the ideas that we can come up with when we hang out together, when we talk together, when we have it, when we when we studied enough that we can actually relate, and we're not talking about well, well I did eight reps and I did uh, the five sets. Like we're beyond that. It's, it, that's cool, but we've got to get past that so we can see that actually you could do probably five sets maybe for your goals. You know. Maybe not, whatever. But I'm just. But I think that's a great idea, and I just wrote that down because that is something that you and I could start to look into. The three of us could start to say, okay, let's take some baselines for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Now, I know I've got the joint that I would look at for neurogenic inflammation. I know it's it's my left knee. If I, I mean, if I don't get that thing just dialed in, lined up when I'm doing strength training, it it just it it doesn't doesn't hurt, but it's giving me all the information of, please don't do that to me again. Please, no more. The quads are like, you can come on some more, but my knee is like, dude, no. Mm-hmm. I would love to have a baseline of my blood glucose levels as I'm working out, doing a leg workout um, with everything dialed in and, and, and locked down, and then actually do something that I'm pretty sure is gonna kick off some neurogenic inflammation and see if there's a change. Right. And I think that the three of us could do that. I think we, if we, if any of our clients are wearing this three style Libra, um, you know, we could have them do the same thing. Dude, that's, that's awesome. That's yeah. awesome. That's cool. I'm glad. Yeah. Oh, what, the three style Libra, I'm, I'm guessing that it is a uh, subcutaneous like thing that kind of sits under your skin with a little patch over it and just sits there. 
Well, no, I think it's literally like a little patch that just you stick it on the back of your arm, um, and it um, it's just essentially just like pricking your skin and getting access to your blood for twenty yeah. minutes, and then you sink yeah. it. It's constantly reading, and you take the the monitor and touch it, and it basically absorbs all the data. Right. You get the kind of a, an idea, but it's good. Like you can use it as well. If someone was potentially reacting to foods, you can see when they were having certain meals if they were getting big rises and falls and stuff like that. Cool. Um, I know this is a little bit of a side side uh, conversation, but um, how, how hmm, are they cost prohibitive, or is that something that your run of the mill client will go out and get? Oh, sure, I'll go buy one. But I, that, I don't believe that. It's not that much. They're not that no. much. Okay. Awesome. And I think I think if you go through the right places, you can get them like prescribed or something like that. Like you, you it's like if there's someone who is like a diabetic, that they'll be able to get them pretty well. Or or if for some reason your your blood, uh, if for some reason you go you do your labs and you're in the pre-diabetic range, mm -hmm. I'm sure because I hate doc. You know, I'm not sure exactly why I'm there. Um, I'd love to get one of these things so I can see why. Because I certainly don't want to keep going in that direction. Mm -hmm. Just right? tell them your HbA1c is like seventy, and then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think it'd be cool because I've got clients where there's, you know, they've had past injuries or something like that, and and we've seen like they've, you know, their blood sugar is relatively stable, and then the day following their a, a big leg session or something like that. Um, I got one client who had a previous knee injury and his blood sugar tends to always get a bit out of whack following leg days. And you, you'll get some people that will be like, oh, it's just neural fatigue and you're not getting quite good sleep. And it can be because he's That's neurogenic inflammation right there, yeah. bud. Boom. Shit programming. Would it, would it be, um, would, would, the, would the heart rate be an indicator as well or not? Well, that's a really good question. Um, and um, I'm going to say that so far, um, it, it heart rate doesn't seem to be affected by it as as predictably because you've got other reasons why heart rate elevates, right? Mm -hmm. um, and number two, there's another there's another measurable quantity of heart rate, and that is the heart rate variability. Mm -hmm. Heart rate variability is a indication of of how stressed your system is, mm -hmm. and that right now, the measures for heart rate variability are, and the research is pretty good for supporting doing heart rate variability, say, first thing in the morning to see how recovered you are. Hmm. But the data is still, I'll call it controversial about heart rate variability measurement, especially within exercise sessions and deriving any meaning from it. Hmm. Um, the other big problem seems to be that for most of the devices where people are looking at heart rate variability, they're wrist worn. And as a result, when you're exercising, the, the, um, the fidelity, the, the quality of the signal um, is, a, is, is not quite as good as wearing a chest strap. Yeah. But most people don't like to wear the chest straps anymore, right? We, we exclusively just use Polar now, don't we? Like, yeah. Yeah. Just the chest yeah. Ones. Mm. yeah. Well, if, if you've got the chest strap going, then you might be able to collect better heart rate variability data, but it's still not clear how to interpret that data within strength training workouts. Within cardiovascular workouts, there seems to be um, some trending information, 
but for strength training workouts, I, I, and I don't completely understand why, but it's just not as, um, it's just not as, um, predictive. Mm. I know, I know for a fact, just from clients and just seeing trends over time, that if I've got, if I programmed in a particularly taxing session, that's going to, you know, require a lot of loading in those ranges. And obviously you're, you're producing more trauma at the tissue. Heart rate variability will, for some people, will drop quite significantly the next day. And then from a programming perspective, like we're looking at potentially taking that next day to flip the switch, so to speak, in regards to the autonomic balance they're in and trying to drive recovery. Um, but yeah, like without doubt, multiple, multiple times a day, you'll see a check-in with heart rate variability skewed after a particular session. That's cool. So, so what I, so what, what I think we can do guys, um, at some point is I think we should come up with a, a, I'll call it like a, a formalized data table where of course we're not putting people's names in, we sign them numbers or whatever, mm. but where we're putting in the information that we want to see <clears throat> and also putting in, okay, this is what this person did. This is the volume that they did or whatever. So that we can start to correlate these things because it's entirely possible that because of the population that you work with Callum, you're seeing this certain trend. And it would be important for people to know that these are the people that Callum works with. And that's why we're seeing this trend. And then you, Luke, you might be working with, you know, another group of people and they see a slightly different trend. And then I might be working with another group of people and we trend like Callum's group, but it's important so that, you know, when we have trainers listening to us, they go, Oh, well, Wait a minute, who does Callum work with again? Oh, those aren't my clients. All right. So that's an, oh, oh, Jacques works with the clients that I work with. Okay. At that, all right, I got it, right? See what I mean? Um, I, I just think that, you know, as, as leaders in this, in this industry, it'll be really cool to start to, yeah, collect the data, get other people to, you know, validate the data um, and really say, no, yeah, we're not just, you know, not just making this stuff up you know this is here's the data that supports it because so i've always thought and i've spoken to look about this before you know with like clinical research and looking into these avenues and these topics and the data tracking that we use week by week with clients you might have five or six variables you're tracking hrv resting heart rate blood glucose blood pressure sleep mm. tracking and stuff like we've got so much data on clients that we've built up over the last few years that it seems silly not to utilize that for some form of bigger purpose. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Um, especially now that we have all these smart devices, they collect more data than, than we even know, right? Some of this data that, that are, you know, our Apple watch or Fitbit, whatever, some of it goes back to the lab and they're still trying to figure out what do we do with all this data? They're looking for trends in it. And then when they see a trend, they're like, oh, 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 look, when this person does this, 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 and this, look at these things that happen. So they add that as a feature the next time in their app, right? So I think Cal just mentioned the blood pressure thing as well. And that's another one that's just flagged up because I've just, it's just occurred to me, one of the systems that gets um, pinged by the neurogenic information is that, that renin angiotensin system. So again, we see people massive fluctuations in blood pressure following certain sessions. Yep. There's another marker, right? Yep. Cool. Now, now in the States, um, the only way I could do blood pressure is if I said to somebody, Hey, look, I'm taking your blood pressure, but this, this number is meaningless. Mm. Right. 
because in the states you have to be, or certain certain states in the state, I believe you have to, you know, have some sort of special certification, whatever. Um, because what they're trying to avoid is an unskilled person taking someone's blood pressure and saying, "Ah, no, you're fine," when they just missed the first Karatkov sound or whatever, yeah. and you know, as a result, misread their blood pressure and had this person doing something that they shouldn't be doing. Mm. That's actually uh, pretty responsible, though, because I mean, it's like there's so much now where they've just altered the um, recommendation, like the the the, mark, the range that you want to be in, haven't they? They've just pulled it down, so you get loads of people that go, "Oh yeah, you're fine." It's actually you, you know, five five points yeah. on the systolic and diastolic. Yeah, um, yeah, that's that's actually. I think it's good that we have access to do it whenever we want, but it's I think yes. there needs to be more education, isn't there? Well, let me ask you this, um, kind of dovetailing on that, just so that we can see the scope of this whole neurologic approach is you have somebody who comes in and you have them sit down and you take their blood pressure and they are, they're definitely out of the range, they're out of the range and they're typically squarely within the range. Mm. They're out of the range today. What do you do? Mm. What do you do with this person? Do you tell them, I'm sorry, you meditate. What's that? Go home and meditate and breathe. <laughs> Yeah, breathe. Yeah. Now, what I think is really interesting is if you were to ask most people, hey, look, I'm stressed out. My blood pressure's out of control. They would tell you to go to yoga, right? Mm. And I always wanted to know, like, what is it about yoga that, why does it have this reputation of chilling people out so much? Because when I go to yoga, I don't get chilled out. I'm like, hey. I'm just not comfortable. I'm not having a good time. You know, the whole thing. Other people love it. You know, no big deal. But I wanted to know, is it something about those positions? Is it like, you know, is it tree pose that really, does that send a certain signal to your nervous system to make you relax? Or is it, you know, Hanumanasana, you know, you do that little front split thing. Is that, does that somehow make your nervous system just relax? Not at all. Not at all. It has to do with, where you choose to place your mind. So from my standpoint, I can have somebody doing yoga when they're doing a bench press with their maximum weight. Mm. If I want someone to actually have a stress reducing experience in the gym, they come in with their blood pressure all jacked up, I might say to them, so I've got a question for you. What's your favorite exercise? What do you mean what's my favorite exercise? Which exercise when you're you know, working hard on it, it, it makes you feel good. You, you just like the way it feels in your body. They're like, mm, I like knee extensions. I love the way that, you know, that, that quaddy kind of burn feel. Okay, cool. Why don't we go over there? And what I want you to do is I just want you to do this set <clears throat> just as long and just with the weight that really feels awesome to you. Yeah. That's what I would do. Yeah. And that See, comes back to that BDNF, getting the right response and all that stuff, yeah. well, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, one of the reasons why, like, I've I've done it probably for the last six months or so, and it's it's not by it's it's not deliberate, but with clients in house, like I won't necessarily have a specific program I'll be running off. I'll just judge that on how they come to me on the day. Mm -hmm. if they're in a in a high state of readiness, we'll push a little bit more. If I know that the stress response is going to be high and their ability to achieve anything productive by nailing them isn't going to be there, then I'll I'll completely change the session. Mm. Yes, that's awesome. Mm. I think that um, unfortunately, uh, a lot of our colleagues 
um, are uncomfortable uh, or, or aren't able to do that, to do what you do, Callum. That takes a high level of skill to be able to go, okay, I know how to make this shift for this person. Um, but that's a, that's a very important necessary skill um, to have. Yeah, that's cool. So let's, um, let's chat about then some of the things we consider with like the different stages of muscle contraction and the impact that can have then. So, I mean, if we're going to run through like motor unit recruitment and all that stuff, like what are the things that are occurring on the concentric phase versus the eccentric phase versus an isometric phase? And and how would that play into this debate? Well, there's a, there's a big thing that, um, uh, I know people get exposed to, but it seems like they're not spending enough time studying it. And that is just the physics of exercise. Mm-hmm. Meaning there are certain things that are just built in to an exercise that uses free weight of any type, whether it's attached to a cable or stuck in your hand or on a sled or on a bar. When you have free weight that you're working with, the physics involved with doing a concentric exercise are different than the physics involved with doing an eccentric exercise. Hmm. As a result, when you do an eccentric contraction, you will not have to come up with as much effort, and it's reflected in the neuromuscular um, energy signature, um, as you will need when you're doing a concentric exercise. So you actually use less energy when you do an eccentric than when you're doing a concentric. Okay, and that's just baked into the physics of the exercise. And it's reflected in the way that the nervous system responds as well. So if somebody said to me, hey, look, man, I want to create a metabolic crisis in my muscle tissues. And why would I want to create a metabolic crisis in my muscle tissues? Because I want hypertrophy. Okay, cool. Metabolic crisis in my tissues. That means that I need to use this tissue long enough so that I'm really starting to go, whoa, where's all the energy going? And my body starts to crank up that, what is it called? The uh, mTOR and what's the other one? Uh, What's that? Yeah, PI3K, AKT, part Something, yeah, one of those things, right? Yeah. I remember. <laughs> that whole cycle, okay? Yeah. So, <clears throat> as I am, jeez, uh, I, I, lo- I lost my train of thought. Help. So, what a met- metabolic crisis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you've got this metabolic, you have this metabolic crisis that you're trying to stimulate um, within this tissue. So, I'm going to make sure that I have uh, an exercise that allows me to experience that, that pushes me to that end, okay? Mm-hmm. Versus another scenario where it's not the metabolic crisis that I want to get to, I just want to recruit as many of the motor units as possible. Mm-hmm. Entirely different situation, right? Mm-hmm. But is it in the sense of you could, you know, once we're like, we know that, if we're doing an exercise and all we're, all we're wanting to do is, well, the, the aim on, on the set is to take the muscle to failure. Even if we go, if, even if we implement like slow concentrics and really high reps, we're still going to end up completing the same amount of motor units in the, in the end, at the end of that set, right? Uh, more or less. But let me take one step back to that last example too, is 
the idea of creating um, that metabolic crisis is I might say, if I'm looking at my rep, I might say, I want to spend a little bit more time on my concentric because it uses more energy than on my eccentric, mm. right? Yeah. But if I'm thinking more about the tissue damage end of things, then I might want to spend more time on the eccentric and especially in the lengthen one third of the range of motion for the muscle, not for the joint, but for the muscle. Mm. Okay. Key distinction, people. Key distinction. Yes. yes. Very, very key distinction. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> uh, we, we have, so this idea that every rep should be four or what is it? Let's say two, four, two. I don't know. They, there are all these different counting schemes. And I always wonder, like, well, how'd you come up with that? And it really should be goal dependent. It should be dependent on where you are in your training phase. But if you're trying to create that metabolic crisis, yeah, it seems like you're, you're, if you spend a little bit more time in that concentric phase, that might be quite beneficial. Unless, of course, you're also trying to really get after what's happening in that lengthened one-third of the eccentric phase, then there's some other really cool things that we could do there, too. We know that I keep mentioning this uh, uh, one third of the lengthened um, end of the of the muscle as a key place for eccentric damage because that's what the researchers found. They found that they couldn't even produce that kind of damage anywhere else in the range of motion. Mm. It's typically in that lengthened one third of the range where if you start to go to failure there, that's when you're going to start to get some 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 damage, mm. some tissue damage, mm. which is another stimulant for hypertrophy but it takes longer to recover mm, that's one of the key things isn't it and like, yeah. i mean if you look at the if we look at the difference between an eccentric and a concentric like there's a lot of people that will always say that obviously eccentrics are, are the better tool for hypertrophy and, and all this stuff you know could that be just simply because we're not tapping into the same energy reserves during the session itself. And therefore the, there's more energy left over to actually drive the process of hypertrophy, which is itself such an energy costly process. So if we're creating such a, you know, a high use of ATP within the session that there's less available ATP left over to, to actually drive hypertrophy, would you say? Could I think that would be I think that's a fair hypothesis, um, yeah. but what I would say, instead of thinking of East, if, if, you were, if, if the studies have been done where they say, okay, we're gonna have this group of people do concentric and eccentric, this group of people do eccentric only, these people do concentric only, all to failure, and then this group over here, they're gonna do nothing at all, right? Yeah. Haven't seen that study yet, but <clears throat> if they did a study like that, and that study came out and they said, Wow, the eccentric only to failure, folks, more hypertrophy in the same amount of time. Mm. That would be a very interesting finding to me, right? But I haven't seen that study. I could be wrong. I'm not saying that I've read every single thing that's out there. But I haven't seen that study that compares those four groups of people. And then what you have to also look at is, well, how much time did they spend in each one of those phases? For the people who do the concentric and eccentric, did they spend equal amount of time in each phase? Yeah. Or did they spend more time? You see, so there's, there, there are things that have to be, as we start to put together the, the underlying mechanisms, you see all the wiggle room that you and I have in terms of how we can run our experiments with clients. 
there are some of our clients, and I know you guys have seen this before, some clients love long sets. They love it. They absolutely love it. They much prefer doing a set of 30 to failure. And there are other people who are like, dude, we just did 15. I want this done. I want this over, right? That's me. The good thing is, is we can accommodate each, no matter what their goals are, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. We just have to figure out how to strategically get their bodies ready to do either one of those extremes, or if they need to do 30, but they can only do 15, how do we get them ready psychologically and physically to do the 30? Mm. Absolutely. Yeah, man. Mm. I think it's also as well, would it be, um, you know, let's say we had an individual who had some level of neurogenic information that was pretty evident, or they were com coming back from some injury and, and we wanted to manage information that we're, we're it would be fair to say that we create less information on concentric portions of the lift. So would that be a better tool to use in those instances rather than like getting them into that length and third on an eccentric and causing a lot of muscle damage and potentially lengthening the inflammatory response their body's going to have to produce? That is a, that is a fair way to approach that scenario, Luke. I can, I can also say that you could also just design a resistance profile such that when you get to that lengthen, and lengthened um, one third of the of the muscle, that the resistance just drops way off, right? Mm. You could also run it like that. Um, or hail because, the reverse bands. What's that? Or hail the reverse banding. Yeah, it could be reverse banding. It could be just the direction of the of the cable, right? So that as you're going through the motion, the moment arm drops off down to zero. Yeah. Um, but if you're uh, PTing them, you could manually offload it and stuff like that, can you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or if you're using um, some sort of pneumatics like a Kaiser, you could just back off on the right yeah. on the air pressure. Mm -hmm. um, mm. That's cool. Yeah. Mm. Yep. Yeah. So where would, um, would isometrics play into this in terms of if you were, you know, w would you be able to create some like a similar level of, of muscle damage on, uh, on, on certain points in an isometric, if you were to get a muscle in a particular range and perform an isometric or was that the isometrics, would they be more useful for that whole energy crisis and, and potentially going down that? post-activation potentiation thing when you're performing them at the right intensity? Yeah, I'm thinking um, I, I would use isometrics as a way. I use isometrics for a couple of reasons. Um, one, I use isometrics as a way of exploring the response of the neuromuscular system simply mm -hmm. be, because of how simple they are, because of how, how many variables I can control. Um, Two, I use isometrics to help my clients um, understand control, right? And three, I use isometrics to help people um, manage specific parts of a range of motion. But I want to mention that I will not use isometrics as the final step for a warm-up. Yeah. Right? So... Let's say that I've got someone who is, um, they're recovering from a knee surgery, had an ACL tear. They've done their physical therapy. Physical therapist said, you need to get back to the gym because you've gotten a little heavy. You need to lose that weight, right? 
They come in to see you and they say, my knee feels pretty good. It doesn't hurt very much. But you notice as they sit down, that last like a third of the sit down, right? They kind of free fall and sit down on a chair, right? And you say, hey, wait a minute. Can you sit on the edge of your chair and you stand up and they have to reach for the handles and push themselves up, right? You see what I mean? They've yeah. got that little zone of weakness. So what I'd want to do is perhaps put that person on a leg press, see if they have that active range of motion, and I would have them do an isometric right there at the bottom, right? Mm. Learn how to control the, the increase of force right in that one position. So I'd have a load on there that's light enough for them to move, and I'd say, hey, look, I want you to start to ramp up your force pushing on this plate. And as soon as it moves, I want you to just hold it right there. As soon as it moves, just the tiniest bit, hold it right there. And then I would keep increasing the load until they push with all their might and it doesn't move at all. Mm. And then guess what? I have them go sit down on a chair and see if they can actually stand up smoothly without using their arms. They might not be able to do that on day one, but at some point they will have mastered the recruitment of all those motor units and muscles needed to get up out of that chair. Mm. Right? So using that isometric helps to focus the attention of their nervous system on that specific range. Mm. Awesome. That's awesome. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So in terms of the motor unit side of things, what are the, what are the sort of things that um, we would uh, we'd be wanting to consider in terms of when we're structuring, you know, hypertrophy training versus strength training and stuff like that? Like, um, that's a broad question. <laughs> that's a great question. It just it um, um, the think of it like this: the more conditioned your muscles are to being used, mm. the more muscle fibers it uses from the beginning of the contraction to the end. Yeah. Another way of thinking about this is that if the muscle is not conditioned to being used, at the beginning of the contraction, it uses relatively few fibers and it uses fibers in the, um, it uses uh, small muscle fibers. Whereas somebody who's in, who, whose muscle is already conditioned for activity, at the very beginning of the contraction, they're gonna use a broad spectrum of muscle fibers from small to actually medium and maybe even some of the large guys, right? Yeah. So it spreads out the load more evenly throughout the muscle. Yeah. Okay. So if I am unconditioned, deconditioned, and I want hypertrophy, my first goal should be to try to get more motor units being recruited, right? Yeah. That's the first thing I want to do. I want my system to recruit more guys. And then once my, my system can, can recruit more guys, it recruits guys from the small to the large from the beginning to end. Now I want to create this metabolic crisis for all these guys. Mm. Right? Yeah. If I want to do strength training, then yes, I still want to get those recruitment of all those guys, but I want to maximally load them before they fatigue. Yeah. Right? So I'm not really trying to create a metabolic crisis when I'm trying to train for strength. So there's a common, there's something in common between strength training and hypertrophy training at the very beginning stages. But at the point where you can actually go, wow, I'm recruiting all these awesome motor units, great. 
Now, what do I want to do with them? Do I want to keep just purely working on strength or do I want to work on some hypertrophy? And there will come some strength along with that. Mm. Yeah. It's so pretty cool. Once you, you have this, once you see this, this, this layout of how motor units are recruited, mm. once you see how they potentiate and how they work together to, to spread the load around, it's really cool. You'll see that you've got just so many possibilities in terms of how to design a hypertrophy set or how to design a strength set. Mm. And then you get to even figure out what the hell does strength mean anyway? Mm. And this is, um, yeah, for those that are interested in being able to see this, when, when Jacques comes over to the UK to, later this year to do his, uh, this neurologic course, um, get on it because you'll be able to see it and then you'll also be able to see the differences between individuals and how you know you'll get individuals that will where it becomes a case that when you're planning a hypertrophy set the you're gonna you're never going to be able to create a blanket set for every individual it will have to be individualized um and that because everyone has these different recruitment patterns right yes yes different recruitment patterns um uh, hold here's the other really cool thing is let's say <clears throat> you're doing a set of knee extensions. I don't know why I'm thinking about knee extensions today, but you're doing these knee extensions, okay? And typically when you think of a knee extension, which muscle group pops into your head? Quads. Any one of them? Any one of them in particular? What's the one quad that everybody does their knee extensions for? Rec fem. Is right. that the one? Oh, via, via vastus medialis, right? Yeah, that's what I thought. I, I mean, I, I, hey, I could be wrong. Well, you are in the UK. I was, I was thinking that rec fem, because everyone yeah. says that's the only way you can get it to do something, but I don't think it, it doesn't actually do much to the CT. Well, dude, here's the cool thing about it. If you put some EMG probes over your rectus femoris, vastus medialis, and vastus lateralis, yeah. the participation of those muscle groups changes as you fatigue. Yeah. Mm. That's cool because that means if you have a specific goal if you can if you can throw these on your client and this client's goal is hypertrophy a specific muscle group you can go well <clears throat> it changes as you fatigue here and that's a great thing because it brings this out or if you're trying to really get to that tissue you you'll have an idea of maybe i should pre-fatigue you over here so when we come over to this exercise you actually get more of that muscle we're trying to get after mm. that is customized client specific training Mm. that'd be amazing oh dude it's the funniest thing ever and that's where like unfortunately i, I don't have access to an emg <laughs> but the um for people I'll you yeah that'd be amazing um, I'm, buy, I'm serious i'm gonna buy another one so hey um but i was thinking the the situations where that would be cool because when you look at the quads in general like the way they function as a unit and, and they're kind of creating that resultant force to direct the knee through extension if you were having an individual where like one side let's say their vastus medialis was fatiguing way before their vastus lateralis would you think that they would be at more risk of causing some abnormal forces going through the knee because one side would be then fatiguing quicker and it could potentially trigger some sort of neurogenic information if they took that set far enough i don't know that would I, and the reason why I, I think that's a I think that's a fair hypothesis on its face, mm. but the, but the the reason why I say I don't more know more than yeah probably is that 
there are other um, factors uh, in terms of the way forces are transmitted through the knee by the musculature, by the connective tissues that might allow for this um, signal imbalance between the different muscles. Now, it's not that what you're saying doesn't make sense. It makes perfect sense. But I just want to acknowledge that there might be other mechanical oh, yeah. factors in there that might make that not an issue. Yeah, I mean, it's quite a simplistic way of viewing it. But oh, yeah, it's, it's only down to vastus lateralis immediatus. <laughs> no, 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 Luke, I think that's a great idea. I'm just saying that, you know, there might be some other stuff to consider. But here's oh, the yeah. cool thing is you could actually test that hypothesis. That is a testable hypothesis, yeah. right? That is a testable hypothesis. You know, you'd find you know, some symptomatic or asymptomatic um, you know, patellofemoral syndrome um, uh, clients, probe them up, come up with a protocol, see what you see, tell other people about it. They either go, oh, that's a great idea, Luke. I'm going to look at it too. Or they might say, hmm, there's some problems with your experimental design. We're going to make these tweaks. We're going to run it down in our clinic. Dude, this, this, is, this is what it means to be an exercise scientist. It is that you are willing to have a hypothesis. You're willing to test it, collect the data, and see huh, did, was I right? Or am I going to learn something that's going to blow my mind? Yeah. I mean, it'd be so cool because if you then had like a way of seeing like, okay, yeah, okay, so this person's VMO is, 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 or I hate saying VMO because it's, you know, their vastus medialis is, is fatiguing way before their lateralis. How about we find a way to fatigue their lateralis prior to them doing that and then seeing if it fixes the issue. It'd be quite interesting. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. and that's absolutely that, that's where emgs is cool yeah yeah man well it's um i it's a uh, yeah they're very useful tools very very useful mm. well, i mean what are the things i mean because you, you spoke about it on on uh you know fns when when you did it last year that there's a lot of kind of misinterpretation around emg do, do you want to yes, yes, yes. Well, uh? um uh it probably I, i'd say that probably the most common is um, uh, going back to our um, vastus medialis, lateralis, intermediate uh, rectus femoris thing, is that interpreting the EMG signal um, when people are moving, right? As they're moving, they'll say, oh, wow, look, the signal just increases when you straighten out your knee. It's like, well, yeah, that's what happens because of uh, the signal's proximity to the shortened fibers. That's just part of, you know, that's just basically what you would expect. Yeah. Um, we're also looking at that same scenario. If you see a, a higher signal uh, for the VMO than the rectus femoris or the vastus medialis, assuming that the vastus medialis that therefore is working more, you can't compare the signals to each other. You can only compare what's happening with one signal over time. So yeah. if I see the VMO signal increasing over time, the rectus femoris not increasing over time, and the vastus lateralis decreasing over time, right? That's going to tell me about the muscular particip participation. Um, uh, another thing is, um, let's see, people will associate um, uh, EMG activity with quote activation. Yeah, and that's um, a bit of a problematic thing. It can let you know. Um, when a muscle starts to participate, but um, uh, just a, um, a raw EMG cannot tell you 
how much that muscle is quote activated. Mm. Mm. You have to you have to do um, a few other things to be able to determine something like that. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah. I mean, that's one of the things. There seems to be a lot of misinterpreted research out there where people yeah. have kind of taken these pretty misinterpreted conclusions from it. Um, yeah. yeah, that's 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 good to clarify um and, and to that point luke i think what would be cool for your uh for your listeners is if there's an emg study mm. that they are you know that they're relying on to give them you know information about a certain exercise or what have you mm. and they're wondering about the the validity of that study i'd be happy to talk to them about it um so we can review it and say oh yeah yeah that's that that makes sense or wait a minute they were talking about, you know, this specific population, this was the position. So that does not pertain to your, you know, yeah, I don't know, to your stability ball hyper crunch deal. Yeah. yeah. So, so what are then the, I mean, you mentioned earlier that when we're talking about hypertrophy, you wouldn't want to um, go down the, the post-activation potentiation route is it versus yeah. training. What, what's the the reasoning behind that then in terms of the motiness and stuff because if i in other words you, you, when you start to use a muscle in a way that you weren't using it five minutes ago mm-hmm. potentiation is going to happen okay? okay when i intentionally choose a potentiating technique something that I know will create this potentiation effect. It's, it's about efficiency. It makes it, it, it allows you to get all those tissues, all those motor units, um, I'll call it online really efficiently. Yeah. When we're trying to go for hypertrophy though, we're trying to create a metabolic crisis. So I say use a warm up to get some potentiation because it's going to happen. And then once potentiated, keep going mm-hmm. it gives me at least another extra set yeah are you with me whereas when i'm going for my maximum my absolute best strength i don't want to waste any energy i want to waste as little time and energy as possible on getting my nervous system tuned up and ready to go mm-hmm. right think of it like this um i remember when this used to happen to me Remember how, like, I remember back in the day, everybody was like, okay, look, when you're trying to bench press and you're trying to do more, you want to, you want to warm up, you want to do some warm up sets. And the, and the word at the time, this is before men's fit, men's fiction and men's journal and any of that stuff was around, you know, all we knew was do quote some warm up sets. Mm. And so there'd be some times when I go in the gym and I would do some warm up sets and I'd be like, yeah, I can do 225 because I thought that was something at the time. Right. And there are other times I would go to the gym and do some warm up sets and I'd be struggling with 225. Yeah. So in other words, sometimes in my warm up, I fatigued so much that I couldn't do my max. Mm. Other times I hit it just right. I potentiated and I was ready to go. What I'm saying is if I'm doing straight, if I'm, if my goal is a number in terms of weight, I want to potentiate. I want to do a, a specific potentiating um, activity. If I want hypertrophy, I don't need to do a specific potentiating high activity. It's going to happen at some point along the way. Yeah. See what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the- unless, unless that, that lack of potentiation has created some sort of abnormal joint control. Yeah. 
right? Then I might say, well, let's potentiate this thing so you don't have this discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. But it also tells us something else too, is we all know people where they go, yeah, my shoulder feels a little weird right now, but if I just do this warm up, I'll be good. What happens in that warm up? You potentiate, that's all. And there are very specific things that you can design into a, a warm up, if you will, or an exercise that will potentiate tissues if you need to. They're very specific features. It's not rocket science. Um, you can do it for anything. You can do it for your toes. You can probably do it for your mouth muscles, jaw muscles, shoulder muscles, leg, hip, knee, hand, you name it. You can potentiate it. Mm. Such as? Uh, like an example of a way to do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, let's see. You could uh, – the, the key thing is, you know, um, measurement. So if you had somebody, for example, um, uh, sitting uh, on a seated um, chest press, and it was a – let's call it um, – let's say this is a Cybex one. So have them put their hands on the, on the handles, and what you're going to do is you're going to have them just shove on the handles just a little bit just so that they can lift the, lift the load that's on there. Mm. Then I'm going to ask them, hey, do you feel like you could lift some more? And they probably say, yes, I'd probably knock it down three pegs. And I'd say, okay, I want you to ramp up your force right over five seconds from zero to 100 and see if you can move that at all, right? If they can still move it, I'll increase the weight one more. And then as soon as they can push as hard as they can and they cannot move that stack, just have them hold it there, hold it there, hold it there for about four seconds, let them relax. Mm make them relax for about a minute, maybe a minute and a half. Mm. And go back, have them do that same thing. It'll probably be able to move that position on the stack mm. and evidence of potentiation, right? Before they could not move it, now they can. Mm. So that's an example of one way you could do it. Mm. Well, that's, that's um, obviously like if you're looking to, to make sure they're, prepared as prior to the session but in the case of the where you know you we're we're going to see potentiation during muscular activity anyway like i remember when we hooked someone up um to an emg in, in fns and, and i think it was during a lateral raise and we saw the during the time they were holding the isometric, the motor unit recruitment dropped off i think it was the mean frequency reduced um and that was the sign that they had potentiated during the actual movement itself. So that's when, you know, if we're doing hypertrophy-based training, you're going to see that during the set and you want to keep going anyway, right? Um, yeah, a little, little clarification. So uh, a drop in the mean frequency Maybe. meant that it started to, uh, to add larger motor units, right? And it's also a sign of fatigue, that they were actually fatiguing. So, yes, you are right. In that case, in that case, I want to keep going. They are fatiguing. However, if this was my strength athlete, I'd want to stop them right there. Because mm. yeah. I'm interested in having them produce the force, but I don't want the fatigue just yet because I'm still trying to get to their maximum today. Yeah. You see what I'm saying? It's yeah. the coolest thing. It's yeah. the coolest thing. Mm. It's, a, it's a very cool tool. Definitely one that obviously requires pretty cool experience with to actually use to success but but yes it's uh, i mean who are some people that you would recommend um if people were interested in reading more about it that side of things i mean i know um carlos deluca he's he's one of the guys go through carlos deluca 
Paola uh, Contessa, uh, a guy named Joshua Klein, um, uh, Roger uh, Inoka. Yeah. Uh, is another that he's got a couple of really, really good books. Roger Inoka, note that one. That's a, that very accessible books. Right. Um, whereas uh, DeLuca Klein and uh, Contessa, they're going to be more technical papers. Uh, again, you know, like we can all read, we can use a dictionary, right? Um, and uh, I'm trying to think who else. Um, you know, another end of this that, that we haven't talked about that, and that is the, the structure of the nervous system and how it moves. You know, literally, how, how what how do nerves stretch? How, how does your sciatic nerve manage the, dif the difference between being having your hip extended and your knee flexed versus your hip flexed and your knee extended, right? We know what the hamstrings do. What does the sciatic nerve do, right? What happens when it can't do what it's supposed to do? Does it stretch? How does it do this stuff? Uh, well, there's a um, – or, or even your spinal cord. Your spinal cord needs to be able to change length as you go from flexion to extension through your spine but we never think about the mobility of the nervous system. And when it's not mobile, what are some of the problems that you might run into and what can we do about it as trainers? Um, that's a whole nother thing, but there's a guy named um, uh, Butler is his last name. Uh, or I, was, I wanna say it's Richard Butler, I believe is his name. Uh, he's written a, a few books about the movement of the nervous system, but that, it was also really interesting stuff that needs to be accounted for um, yeah. as trainers. That sounds incredible. Well, that's um, that's going to be our next topic of discussion yeah. in our sessions, I think. That's, yeah. That sounds insane. I've never, I've never thought about that. That's, yeah. Yeah. You know what's, what's in, also interesting, Luke, and this is a funny thing, is that um, a lot of the things that you and I – I'm, and I'm, I include myself in this, that we don't think about because we don't have to. Because so far, everything we've encountered has been okay. But when you meet that client where they can't do a deadlift, they can't do a seated leg curl, they can't do a, um, they there are so many exercises that they can't do, even trunk rotation, because they get shooting pain down the sciatic nerve, you're like, oh. Should I just send you out to the chiropractor, to the osteopath? I mean, what do, what do we do here, right? What are the things that we should do? Um, <clears throat> but we can look into it. The other thing that I think happens for us is, you know, we're so used to working out and feeling good that we really have a completely lost touch with what it's like to do certain things, like in a lengthened third. For you and I, that's not a big deal, the soreness that we feel. But for our clients who are rookies, that soreness that you feel, you can think something's wrong. You're like, dude, I can't even sleep. My shoulder is so, or my lats, or like that thing back there, it's so damn tight. Mm -hmm. But there are ways that we can avoid that if we understand how the nervous system orchestrates muscular contraction and how forces specifically um, damage tissues in specific lengths. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, we, we could probably delve into this all in the, in a part two, but like briefly with based on what we've discussed and the, the inflammatory responses based in certain muscle length, would, would that be as simple as just avoiding getting someone into that length and third and potentially not placing as much emphasis on an eccentric portion of a lift? Uh, that would be, I would say that'd be fair. Yep. You could, you could avoid that. You could avoid that, but then you also have to think about the 
the, the key thing would be to understand um, which end of the range of the motion for that joint is um, is problematic, right? So um, for your knee, for example, it could be full knee extension or it could be full knee flexion. Yeah. For your foot, it could be full plantar flexion or it could be full supplement, uh, supination, right? Mm-hmm. For your shoulder, it could be, you know, uh, full shoulder extension in the sagittal plane or it could be short, full shoulder flexion, excuse me, through the sagittal plane, right? So you have to be very specific about, you know, which ends of the joints range of motion are most likely to trigger that neurogenic inflammation. Yeah. Yeah. And then design your, your, your exercise accordingly. Mm. That's amazing. And, and this is where it definitely, for those that aren't familiar with exercise mechanics and being able to assess active ranges and, and, and all this stuff, it, it will pay to go down the resistance training specialist route and, and explore this stuff in a practical environment um, to get more of an idea of the stuff we're referring to. Um, once you do that, it's, it's, this is, this is kind of the, the world that gets opened up to you. And it's pretty, pretty awesome. Pretty awesome indeed. Yeah. That's, that's, that's important stuff to have under your belt for sure. Yeah. Awesome. So I reckon, um, we'll probably wrap it up there. Cause I think we've been about an hour and a half. That's, that's this is 91 minutes. There we go. So that was, that's, and it's been intense. So what, um, I mean, we we usually ask everyone that we have on the given our our name is the muscle mentors like we we've kind of made this the the official question that we ask everyone but if if you had like three three people that you could learn from that could mentor you for the rest of your life who would they be and and when why oh great question um it doesn't have to be fitness like training related or anything like that it could be anywhere sure um huh Jeez, it's tough, right? Uh, yeah. Well, one would be um, one would be uh, yeah, Roger Inoka, mm-hmm. um, because um, he's just a really solid researcher, um, and um, he's a very kind guy and accessible. Um, uh, and yeah, really willing to uh, ask the tough questions and, um, not attached to his findings, you know, willing to say, whoop, I was wrong. Let's do that again. Mm. Love that. Yeah. That's, um, let's see. Uh, then I also think, uh, it's going to sound cheesy, but I'm sorry. It's true. I would love, uh, to be mentored by the Dalai Lama. Yeah. That's not cheesy. What's that? That's not cheesy. That's cool. That's the first Dalai Lama we've had. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, you know, someone who is able to, um, you know, not ignore, you know, suffering, um, who has, you know, just seems like limitless compassion, um, and he's not living in an easy situation. You know, um, he hasn't. And he continues to reach out and try to be helpful. I think that's just amazing. Um, you know, how do you do that? How do you? keep that fuel going, how you get that fire going, I should say, when there's so many things that are trying to tell you, nah, shut up. Now that's ridiculous. No, if you really want to get anywhere, you got to fight for it. You got to punch people in the face. It's like, yeah. ah, I don't know. Um, let's see. And then who else? Um, 
who else? Oh, yeah. Um, and that, I'm sorry if this offends some people, but I got to say, if I could be uh, mentored by our former president, Barack Obama, yeah. man, that would be incredible. Um, just a, it, because he's such a smart individual and to know that for all the intelligence that you have, for all the wisdom that you have, you're still going to, you're still going to make poor decisions. You're still going to completely screw some stuff up, but how do you keep moving forward? How do you maintain that integrity? And when people go low, you go high. I mean, I, you know, mm. it, yeah, I think it would be awesome. <laughs> so those are my three. That's, awesome. <laughs> That's, That's big cool. good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, mate, thank you so much for coming on. Um, oh, you guys, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, uh, both of you. Um, this is a lot of fun. It's outstanding. Happy to do it anytime. That's awesome. It was a true honor. And like when we uh, we we did our mentor like question, I think you you would you were one of mine. So it's, oh. it's an honor to have you on here. Oh wow, man, that's that's cool. Yeah. yeah. And anyone that is you know wanting to you know go into these deep topics to this degree with with someone who seriously knows their shit then then get in touch with Jacques because he's the man um thanks man. just yeah. give us some information on the the upcoming courses then Jacques all right well uh I will be sending out an email uh probably by this Friday letting people know exactly uh when and where it is in London um and if you're not on my email list you can go to fns.training that's fns.training and um, sign up for the email list. And then also the course date will be up there by Friday as well. Um, it's going to be two days and there's going to be a whole lot of practical application. Um, I want to start within the first hour of actually, you know, getting to exercises, getting bodies, um, you know, on the machines, getting EMG probes on folks so that we can really explore, um, how we apply neuroscience to exercise. Again, the whole idea is to make our exercise design that much better. You're already good at what you do. I know you are. That's why you're listening to this podcast. Let's take it up another level. Mm. Let's do it. Yeah. And me and Cal will be there as well. So. I'll definitely oh, be there. Awesome. Awesome. That's two already. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. Let's, make it, let's just make it a private event. Yeah. <laughs> no one else is coming. Sorry, guys. <laughs> well, uh, to, you know, to be honest, the, the, the seats typically go pretty quick. So once yeah. it's up there, uh, don't mess around. It, it's going to be limited because of, uh, I want people to be able to participate. And if it gets too big, you can't do that. People end up just standing on the edge, getting frustrated. So, yeah. All right. Awesome. What awesome. about just, uh, like social media and websites and stuff? Where can we find you, Jacques? Yeah, if you, again, fns.training is one place you can uh, find stuff. And then on social media, on uh, Instagram, I'm at myotopia. That's uh, Amazon Mary, Y-O-T-O-P-I-A. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, Facebook, same thing, myotopia. Um, so, yeah. Perfect. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you, man. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Great pleasure, and we'll uh, we'll hopefully get you back for a part two soon. So yeah, sounds great. Yeah, awesome. Thanks, Jack. So guys, um, thank you for listening to the episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, 
yeah, I mean, Jacques, for those obviously worked out the guy's an absolute wizard. Genius. Um, yeah, he's a dude and he, he knows his stuff and he's also extremely well, like, grounded and, um, you know, embracing that scientific perspective. So, you know, he's always open to learning new stuff and changing his views and, and running cool experiments. So he's a dude. Um, definitely someone that both Callum and I would recommend learning from. So when the opportunity comes, jump on it. Yeah. Um, obviously, some of the stuff we spoke about, I don't. We don't know if a disclaimer is that necessary, but we'll say it anyway. That obviously, if you're, you know, as personal trainers, a lot of the stuff we spoke about, we are licensed to do because we are exercise professionals. That's our thing. So for anyone out there who's not an exercise professional, um, obviously, make sure that you implement all the stuff we spoke about in the presence of an exercise professional um or under the supervision of um anything from a medical perspective as well that obviously goes without saying that obviously consult your medical professional especially with that stuff with regards to blood pressure and blood glucose measurement all that stuff um but yeah enjoyed and um and yeah i mean we'll look forward to hopefully getting jacques back soon for a part two because pretty sure this episode will be well received and um, obviously Jacques more than willing to come back which is good um, and uh, and then we're also going to say thank you for, for all the guys that attended mm. guys and gals that attended our seminar in London the other week which was a, a, a mighty success and it was a, it was an honour to be able to do that so thank you and I'll let Cal um, um, grateful for that it's great yeah. You get, you get, yeah, I'll let, I'll let you plug the rest of it. <laughs> plug, 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 plug. Um, yeah, just that, yeah, once again, big thanks to everyone that came out on Sunday uh, for um, the, the seminar at Embody, and thank you again for Embody for hosting us so kindly. Um, next, people have been asking about practical elements of the education system. The next one that will be worth saving in your diary will be held at FLF in Manchester. Most of you will know Frontline Fit Performance Centre in Manchester. Um, we have a two-day, uh, well, two lots of two-day weekends coming up, um, looking into assessment methods on day one, um, structural anatomy workshops, assessing uh, joint ranges of motion, identifying movement dysfunction, um, and then day two, which will be taken by uh, well, day one will be taken by um, Mr. Chris Knott and Mr. James Largie from Frontline Fit, uh, two highly skilled coaches, um, and then and then uh, day two will be taken through um, by us, myself and Luke, and we'll be basically looking at the practical applications of day one and how that's going to impact that individual's training. Um, we'll look through mechanics in more depth. Um, we'll look through individualized exercise execution, exercise delivery, and we'll also look at program design based on all those factors. Um, so it's basically getting hands on with a lot of the stuff we've been talking about in theory um, and looking at in play, basically. So joints, muscles, and, and generally how to train effectively given all scenarios. Um, so yeah, that, that'll be awesome. Save the date. The dates for the lower body module will be uh, the 20 and 21st of October. And the dates for the upper body module will be the 17th and the 18th of November. Okay. Uh, so if anyone wants any more information on that, please pop on in on Instagram, go on either myself or Luke's page or the FLF page um, or Chris Knott's page or James Largie's page 
and send us a DM and we'll send you over an email with more details. Okay, so it's definitely one not to be missed and it's something that is gonna be a weekend of content, you know, forged together, which will be very, very valuable for you all. Um, and I know that, you know, if, if this was me a couple of years ago and I had the access to go and do that, it would have excelled and upskilled myself as a coach greatly. It's like a cheat sheet for being a coach. It's like a hack. So it's something you don't want to miss. Um, the other announcement is uh, me and Luke are going to the Middle East. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're moving. Sorry. We're moving to... Uh, so we, we are going to head over to see the guys at Embody in Dubai, um, which is amazing, amazing opportunity. Very looking forward to that, both myself and, and Luke. Um, and that will be most likely the final week of, uh, well, the final period of November or very early December, more than likely it's going to be end of November. So yeah. once exact dates have been confirmed and flights have been booked, then we'll kind of release that on the socials. But um, that will essentially be day one, which will be going through um, the nervous system, much like we did in London, um, with some expanded elements on that after we've done the first one in London. Um, the nervous system and its role in um, the digestive system, the digestive tracts, um, the gut, microbiome, uh, sleep, circadian, circadian alignment, all sorts of factors on general um, physiology and um, training for hypertrophy and how the nervous system is going to impact that and how we can essentially optimize those systems for the best results possible. Um, and then day two will be a, a private workshop um, with a selected few people where we'll go into more hands-on practical application uh, in the gym at Embody in Dubai. Um, which will be absolutely epic. Yeah, it's going to be awesome. And and like for those that missed the opportunity to come to London, you now can come to Dubai. (laughs) 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 Um, We'll obviously be doing it again at some point in the UK. So I think there's another couple of opportunities to do it internationally as well. But um, the the Dubai crowd and the the Middle East crowd, that's, that's coming. So that's yeah. cool. Um, there's also another piece of news that will be released soon, um, which is being finalized on Friday, which is something that's going to be a, a long-term project, but something which will be launching in 2019, um, where there'll be lots of content available on certain mm-hmm. accessible mediums of the internet. Right. Which should be quite cool. Yes. Um, but yeah, that's pretty much it from us, guys. Um, any final words, Luke? Thank you for listening and uh, stay jacked. Stay very jacked. And if you're not jacked, then what are you doing here? Yeah? Yeah? If you're not jacked, you need to come to Dubai. <laughs> no, just kidding. Um, yeah, thanks again for everyone that came to the seminar. It's greatly appreciated. And me and both myself and Lou were completely blown away by your support. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, we'll, uh, we'll speak to you all again soon. Take it easy, y'all.